Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to sit at your feet, to drink deeply from your word. And that's what we desire, to hear your word speak to our hearts, into our lives, Lord to direct us in the way that we should go. So your sheep, your people are listening. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find it's a, a fascinating chapter, see. As Paul begins in verse 1, As Paul begins in chapter 4, he has his plea, plea to walk in holiness and to please God. As we come to the end of this same chapter, we're going to see on uh, December 2nd, we're going to see the taking up of the saints or what's called the rapture, the rapture of the church. But it's very possible that, that Paul was thinking about Back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, and even Hebrews that he'll write about later, thinking about the man Enoch. Enoch, we notice these similarities. It's back in Genesis that Enoch walked with God. And then in Hebrews, we learn that he pleased God. And then later on, Enoch was taken up by God. See, it's that pleasing walk with God that we are accepted in him as we trust in him, and then our lives will be found in him. So Paul begins with this again, this again, this, this plea. Look with me in verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us the instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk that you excel even more. Paul uses this word finally to to signal a change in subject, not the ending of the book, because we know it continues, but he changes the subject. He moves to the practical application. Typically, Paul's writings are doctrine in the very beginning, then the application, the second half. Well, the word finally means a change in subject. And Paul and his companions have have been that example to the believers how to walk in holiness. And in writing the Thessalonians, Paul instructed the believers by walking in practical holiness is one of the ways that we please God. In fact, going back to the Psalms, we see in Psalm 19.14, the psalmist writes, Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. One of the things that's instilled in the heart of every person who becomes a believer is a desire to please God. To please God, our Father, but also the the Son. See, it's the Holy Spirit that instills in us that desire to do the right thing. But sometimes we can quench that spirit. We begin to turn back to self-centeredness and focus upon our own selves. Now, John 5 Verse 30 says this, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, 
my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will who has sent him. Jesus speaking, again, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus was led by the Father, led by the Spirit. And notice he says, I don't seek my own, but the will of him who sent me. And this is something that God instills in every person's heart. Again, when you were born again, this was your desire to please God, to know God, to grow in God. But sometimes we let the world creep back in our life. We're like playing the hokey pokey one day, our foot is in, we're getting in the hole, and then we get out. But the goal is really living to please God should really be the pride of every Christian's life. In contrast, though, to the unbelievers, they behave as they do. Why? Because they do not know God. But Christians must behave completely in a different way because they do know God and because he is a holy God, because he's our God personally, and because we want to please him when we realize what he has done for us. So to walk and please God means that you see his truth as more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. Well, verse 2 reminds us there's an obedient walk if we want to please God. For you know what commands we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. By this, the will of God in your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Well, the first thing I want to call your attention to is, for you know what commands we gave you. Notice it's by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us that Paul was sent by Jesus, and the message that he brings is in the authority of Jesus Christ. Well, I like what he wrote in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is what Paul has. This is what he desires for Timothy. This is what he desires for you and me, that we would be motivated from a pure heart, love from a pure heart, and that we would walk with a good conscience, and our faith would be sincere. Now think for a moment of the Ten Commandments. How do you view them? Are they a bunch of rules and regulations? Well, for some, they're God's tender, loving commandments. Because God is a God of love, he gives us these commands. These are meant to be protections. Now, the verb and the word for commandments signifies an order passed from, from one to another. As when a command was passed along a line of soldiers, and it's often used as in military orders. So it's thus appropriate for the authority of the commands, such as those given by the authority of Jesus Christ. And he simply passes them along. They're not his laws. They're things given by God. And the fact is they're God's tender, loving commands. Now, if we're to walk obedient walk, we must have a knowledge of God's word. And all of God's word contains God's will, both affirmations and prohibitions. Specifically, God includes salvation in the scripture, in self-sacrifice, in spirit-filling. And then there's submission, suffering, and steadfastness, endurance of the saints. 
And here in our text today, it's sanctification, which literally refers to the state of being set apart from sin to holiness, or set apart unto God, a holy God, a loving God, a God who wants the best for you and me. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, when people say, I don't really know what the will of God is for me, notice it's clear, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's the instruction that's designed to produce a greater holiness and absence of sexual immorality in our text. And this is God's priority. And when we talk about holiness, we we talk about a, a separation from worldliness and being set apart to God. Notice with me in Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. This is God's will. This is God's plan. This is God's desire. See, Christians are to avoid and abstain, abstain from any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside the circle of God's revealed will. Now, the Thessalonians lived in this very pagan environment in which there was a sexual looseness was not only practiced openly, but it was also encouraged, encouraged even of their young kids. In the Greek religion, prostitution was considered a a priestly prerogative. Extramarital sex was something as an act of worship. They needed to exercise self-discipline enabled only by the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. And this process of sanctification naturally leads to a life of good works. These good works are not perfect works, but works that spring from the principle of love of God and a love expressed toward God. Look with me, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the key here is this God of peace himself is the one who sanctifies you. You are his workmanship. And our part is to submit. So God himself and God's word is the sanctifying agent, the Holy Spirit takes this word and works in the word of God. So the goal of sanctification is that the believers would be prepared to be sent into a world as Jesus was sent to glorify God by doing his work. Look back at verse 3 again. We see another principle, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is against God's Holy Spirit. What is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So this body is, is not yours. It's, you've become a bond slave. You've given yourself over to God. Now it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're to keep it pure, keep it set apart for God, And if you're not married, there's going to be the day that that you're going to give this gift yourself to that other person, first to God and then to others. Or there there are those that are not pleasing to God in contrast. 
They that live only for themselves, they're not pleasing God. Self is is all the God that many worship. Well, secondly, there there are those that only seek to please men. And those that are looking to please men are not pleasing to God. In fact, Galatians 1.10 says this, For am I now seeking the favor of men or God? Or am I striving to please men? If I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ because that's what we're called to do. Not please men, but to please God, a holy God, a loving God. Well, the third thing I want to call your attention to is those that are in the flesh. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In fact, Romans 8, look at verse 8 and 9 with me on the screen. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. So those who walk in the flesh, those who dwell in the flesh, those who not have the Spirit of God cannot please God. Well, fourthly, there are those who have no faith. They cannot please God. In fact, Hebrews 11.6 makes it clear. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there are those that please God and those who do not please God. That's what Paul is showing. Well, look with me in verse 4. We, we see what a glorifying walk is all about. In verse 4, that each of you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Well, this vessel here, it probably means the control of his body. For our bodies are the vessels of God. Now, he says in verse 4, you to know how to possess your own vessel. Now, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some of honor and some of dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, there's our word again, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. If you want to be used by God, we need to be sanctified, set apart for God, a holy vessel, cleansed, cleansed by the word of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes the word and works in the person. He washes us with the water of the word. And then we're more usable for God. Now, glorifying God begins with what? First, the knowledge of sin and the need of separation. So we need to know God's word. We need to hide it in our heart. We need to recognize the depravity of man, that we are bent towards sin and that we want to be set apart for God. It's the only way we can do it. And then God works in us. Now, Christians are not to put themselves in a place where they become victims of circumstances or fleshly desires. If you're an alcoholic, you can't go to a bar, you can't go to the party where people are drinking because the temptation is going to be overwhelming. You have to remove yourself from these circumstances. Now, or to avoid any situation that, number one, would stumble ourselves first or stumble others from seeing Christ. 
Now notice 1 Corinthians with me. Chapter 10. No temptation has been overtaken you, but is common to all men. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Now God is not going to allow you, simply is what he's saying, to be tempted. But you can tempt God. You can put yourself in a place you know you shouldn't be. God's there to protect you. But if you choose to have it your own way, you will suffer the consequences. But if you do as God says, then he will protect you. There's a time that sometimes God just turns you over to the flesh, turns you over to Satan, allows Satan to deal with you so you'll be saved in the end. But you're going to have a wasted life. Notice verse 5 goes on. It says, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, again, who do not know God. See, they're doing what's natural to them. And as, as believers, we shouldn't be angry at them because they're blinded by the God of this world. They're just doing what comes natural. Now, Paul never said the Gentiles did not know about God. No, no. They do not know God personally, even though they know about him. See, it's that personal, intimate knowledge of God, knowing he's a holy God, that he loves us, that he has a a plan, he wants to set us free. And knowing that truth, that truth sets us free. This is this again, this this falling away, the, the reason we don't know God. Well, it's all because of the fall. It's in the fall in the Garden of Eden. Everything changed. When Adam sinned, the Holy Spirit vacated that human spirit, leaving man without any divine direction or willingness even to live according to God's plan. They're empty. And the yearning spirits can never find rest apart from God. Often people seek to to fill that eternal void with all types of things, from religion and education to to pleasure, entertainment, sex, ambition, power, human love, and affection. See, the Gentiles, which know not God, they're lost. They're spiritually dead. And when a person accepts Christ, though he is born again, he's born again of the Spirit, He's born from above, and his whole attitude changes, changes toward sex and and all these other things. This is the work of God. When a person comes to know God by faith in Christ Jesus, he discovers that God gives him the ability to act toward this sexual temptation that he never had before. Well, what's important is that that we're careful. We have this careful walk. And that's what verse 6 points to. That no man transgress or defraud his brother in a matter because the Lord is the vinger in all things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification so that he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's a dangerous walk because of immorality is a sin against God, God the Son. 
Now, in the previous two verses, Paul peeled on the basis of importance of sexual purity for the, for the sake of the Christian himself. But here in this verse, Paul peels on the basis the other person involved in the moral act. It seems clear that the, the fact that the person is a, a victim of illicit sex, the initiator of this act takes advantage of his partner in sin by fanning the fire of passion until he loses or her loses that self-control. Look with me in Hebrews. Remind us again the importance. Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I like what John Phillips uh, gave a word, and he said, God has written no trespassing on every man or woman who is not his own wife or husband. In fact, he's posted the warning, trespassers will be prosecuted. That's the fact. God will deal with them. In fact, in verse 6, look at the word, the avenger. See, it's used for the one who exacts a penalty from a person. The only other place this word is used in connection is with a civil magistrate described by Paul, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's in Romans 13, verse 4. Mark it down. Read it later. Here it refers to the punishment for sexual sin is severe. God will judge the sinner in this case. It might take a form of unbearable feelings of guilt that haunt the transgressor, the spoil of all his or her legitimate relationships. It might take another form of exposure and shame. As the scripture says, surely your sin will find you out. Or it could be even venereal disease, herpes or AIDS. It might take the form of one's own wicked behavior, being reproduced in your your own children. And you notice that, that your children oftentimes pick up your bad traits as well as your good. And I've seen it oftentimes that an alcoholic, their kids follow in that same path, or they're immoral, they become immoral. If they're drug addicts, they become drug addicts. There are consequences for our choices. And God has no lack of means, whether physical or psychological, spiritual. He punishes the transgressor, if a person refuses to repent. Hebrews 4.13 says this, For there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open, laid bare to his eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now verse 7 goes on and says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. See, God sees all men either being in Adam or in Christ. See, Adam was controlled by the fall. He was controlled by the flesh. In Christ, we're controlled by a call, and that is in the Spirit. The Spirit directs us and guides us in that path of truth. Now, he's called us from the cesspool, the depravity, uh, the evil, the wickedness of the world, and has begun in us a lifelong process designed to make us more and more like himself. I long for that day when the work is finished. See, whether the fall of man or the call of God controls us, hinges us on one thing. Which nature will we obey? 
again, the nature of God or that of the flesh? The decision really is always ours. God has given us that free will. Will we choose to follow him? He's given us the spirit to help us, but we have to cry out, God, help us. Look at verse 8 in our text. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, Paul specifically mentions all three persons of the Trinity. It was in verse 1, 3, 5, 7, and 8 in chapter 4. He mentions God. Jesus is mentioned in verse 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit here in verse 8. He deals with it because whatever the Spirit is doing, the Father is doing, Jesus is doing, they are working in conjunction in your life to change you and transform you when you surrender your life to him. By referring to the Trinity, Paul shows how these three persons of the Godhead actively are involved in your sanctification because you are his workmanship. God sees our holiness as a priority. It's, it's the main thing that he wants to do. It's the most important thing in your life and his life is the will of God is to make you holy as he's holy. Why did Paul mention the Holy Spirit here, though? Because he enables you to know God's truth. He helps us in our weakness. He confirms our salvation. See, it's his spirit that testifies with your spirit that you're saved. And the Holy Spirit points us always to Jesus. He exalts Jesus, and we have to quench that. He convicts you of your sin. The evidence that you're you're saved as a believer, that you, you're aware of that, you confess it quickly. And for the unbeliever, he's convicting the world of sin that they know they need a Savior. He helps us pray. He helps us when we don't even know how to pray, when it's too difficult to pray. He helps us to have victory over sin. In Acts 2.38, Peter said this, Repent, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, he's not saying that baptism is going to save you, but he says repent. Repent what you thought about Jesus Christ. Baptism becomes this identification with Jesus Christ, that he died and he was raised from the grave, and you are dying to your old self and raise that new life in Christ. When you identify with Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, and you receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. Some of the saddest words I could ever say. Well, look with me again. That one that is has a pleasing walk is one that also has a, a loving walk. It's in verse 9. Now, it is to the brethren. You have no need of anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and more. So they have this loving walk, a, a walk that lavishes people with love, a a walk that is forgiving and caring and building up and serving one another, one that doesn't want to stumble someone else. Romans 5.5, I like what it says. 
Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. There's a red flag that goes up when people say, well, I, 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 I just don't have the love of God. Every believer, God's love is poured into their hearts. And notice it's through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, we choose to love or not love. When that love is in there, we can hold it deep down inside. But as we begin to love and lavish others with that love, as we begin to esteem others higher than ourselves, we find that God continually fills us with love more and more every day. And every time we come to the Word, we sit before Him, meditate upon His Word. He lavishes us again with His love. We show He shows us how and we are to walk because He loves us. He reminds us He loves us when we look at the cross. Well, 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Here's the test. Are you a loving person? Oh, that doesn't mean you're a perfect person. But notice what it says. Again, for the love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God. That we're to go out. If there's one thing that you and I need to get is we're to go out and love a lost world. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. And the one that does that, this scripture is very clear. He knows God, knows him personally. This is eternal life, knowing God, knowing God's will is your sanctification, that love is that motivation. Love is that evidence that you are a true Christian because it's the mark of Christians. Well, the one that's pleasing unto the Lord, we find in verse 11. Notice what it says then. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we've commanded you. Now, here's the harmonious walk. It's a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. Well, it's kind of like don't seek after the limelight. Don't seek to focus and gather people around you. Be content to be little and unknown, loved and prized. You know, there are people that want to call all the attention to themselves. But he simply says, mind your own business. Don't be buttoned into others. Well, it's be also self-supporting. Don't be a parasite. Don't be a moocher sponging off of others. Actively go about a loving life, ministering to your family, ministering to those around you, but following God. Verse 12 continues with that passage so that you will behave properly toward the outsiders and not be in any need. See, a loving person is one that if he's out of work, he, he's looking for work. His job is to get a work. He, he then will share what he has. He's a witness unto the community. Well, it's this walk, as we describe today, that pleases the Father. It's not the walk that is just looking to do the minimum for salvation. What do I need to do to be saved? It's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But that believing is resting on, trusting on completely. It's one who hears the word, 
He acts upon the word. His house is built upon the rock, the rock of Jesus Christ. But it's a walk that makes holiness a priority in his life. When we walk with that priority and make our life holy, we're pleasing to the Father. It's a walk that continually pursues God with an ever-increasing zeal to love him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Father, thank you for your word today that is precious, it's illuminating, and yet it's convicting when we have not been loving, when we have not been pleasing to you, when we say, Father, forgive us. Father, strengthen us. Give us a desire to be right in the middle of your will. We know apart from you, we can do nothing. So we come to the altar. We, we come and lay ourselves down before you and say, have your way in our hearts as we surrender to you again. And all God's people said, Amen.